This is Troy with the discoverfamily.net podcast. Uh, I'm sitting down with Jared Sartell. He's a mental health professional uh, who's had a lot of experience working with families and individuals who are adopted. So grateful to have uh, some time with him today. So Jared, if you maybe want to introduce yourself, uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure, yeah. My name's Jared Sartell. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I started my career uh, working at a therapeutic boarding school and began specializing in working with families with an adopted child who had placed their child in a residential uh, boarding school environment to help uh, them resolve concerns around adoption attachment issues. I've been doing this work for just under 20 years, working with adopted young people and their families. Awesome. Um, yeah, so to kick off, uh, some of the questions I wanted to talk about initially is um, what, what it looks like ideally uh, for uh, a, a family and an adopted individual to know about uh, the adoption. So uh, first question I have, you know, in your experience, do you see that it's, that it's important for a child to know that they're adopted? And how early would you say, you know, you should let them know? Absolutely. What we know is that <clears throat> that families have less disruption uh, when a child knows at the very earliest moment possible that they're adopted. Um, and the greater that you can integrate their adoption story into their lives with any information you have, the sooner the better. Uh, what we also see is that if, say, you do a cross-cultural adoption from a, a foreign country or or biracial or something like that, the more that you can integrate cultural aspects from your adopted child's birth culture, uh, the the better it is for them, uh, for their internal well-being and for their integration into into your family. Okay. And, you know, I think about this, uh, so I've got four adopted kids, as you know, mm-hmm. myself, and with, uh, with one of my sons, he does have, you know, darker skin, mm-hmm. he's got curly hair, and uh, I remember recently I was holding him, we were in the bathroom and looking in the mirror, and we were kind of making faces, and I'm like, he's got, he's got to notice the difference, you mm-hmm. know, but I don't know if at, at that age, at five, if he's able to, to process, you know, if we, we talk about it a lot in our family, it's a, right. it's a big focus, and we're, you know, very open about it. But I, I wonder if you have any thoughts about, you know, at what point will they really start to process and what might be, uh, you know, what, what some of the feelings they go through or things to watch for maybe? Sure. You know, that's, it really is pretty individualized. Um, but kids are smart. Like, they can see difference. And so, uh, you know, speaking to your son, he probably already is noticing those differences, but they may not mean anything to him. Mm-hmm. Just like when you see on a playground with little children they just play with whomever is there to play with and they don't they don't notice the differences they don't really mean anything to them in a, on a real level mm-hmm. um and so he'll actually start giving you cues um dad how can we look different um well with him he knows that he's adopted mm-hmm. because it's something that 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 you're you've always been open about but he might start asking where am i from how come i have dark skin those sorts of things. And the more information that, that you can give a child about their ethnic or racial background, the more you can um, make a game out of researching what it may look like if they were living in that, that culture. 
integrate that into your celebrations at home, into the, the rituals that you have that are, that are healthy for all families to have, uh, to your games, those sorts of things. Um, but they'll, he'll give you cues. Mm. Your child will give you cues if, you, if you're paying attention to it. Sure. Is there any framework you give to those conversations to have with them? You know, what, how do you, how do you, I think one of the main things I've learned having done uh, foster care training and different trainings um, before we got our kids was don't have to have that conversation all at once. You know, Mm -hmm. it can be a process. It can be over a course of years. Um, And, you know, that it's okay to stretch it out and let them process and kind of let them come with, with questions. Is there any, any other th- framework or thoughts you have about those conversations? I'd say if you're able to attune to your child, you'll start noticing. They'll start dropping hints because kids speak in code. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone, you know, all children speak in code. And so if you can attune to your child, then you will, um, you'll start picking up on those hints and, and you'll start just naturally integrating those conversations based upon their hints that you may not even know you're picking up. Um, you know, sort of like if you're, you know, if you're, you're married and you've been married for a while and you just sort of know subconsciously the movements of your spouse and you just sort of, there's a dance that plays out in your home. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully that's what, <laughs> what people get to experience. It's, it's pretty neat. Um, but you can also establish that sort of dance with your child and you'll pick up on those cues. Um, and so they'll ask they'll, the types of questions that they ask will change. Mm-hmm. which means the types of answers that you give will change. And you'll, you'll hopefully be able to see like how they can process and integrate information, mm-hmm. which means that the type of information you give them um, will change as well. The more information a child has at their fingertips, the earlier, um, as, far, as long as they can process it, the better. Mm-hmm. As far as that's that's what we've seen for people to have the best outcomes as far as um, healthy dynamics in their family and and um, avoiding the disruption that can happen because of adoption attachment issues. Got it. And I, I assume you would say, you know, adjust the messaging, especially if they came from a rough situation. You know, you probably don't want to tell a five-year-old, well... You were taken from your home because your right. your mom was a prostitute and right. addicted to meth or something like that. So. Right, but you may say something like that to a sixteen year old. Right, and I've been a part of that process before. Okay, um, revealing information to um, you know to actually was a fourteen year old young woman that had been asking questions, um, and her parents were not able to answer because of their own insecurities. Mm-hmm. Um, they had the information, but but because of their own stuff. They were not able at that time to, or up until that time, to, to start giving this information. So a lot of the work that we did together was helping the parents resolve their own issues mm-hmm. so that they could come, uh, you know, meet with their daughter and disclose all of this information. And it was really pretty interesting because it was a story similar to that. Um, and their daughter's response, and I've seen this way more often than not, was, oh, well, I'm certainly glad that I'm not having to live in that situation. Yeah. And the parents were all worried about, um, you know, we're going to have to disclose this story. You know, that was, mm-hmm. that was a, a, a really sad story. Um, and, and we care about our children so much that we're concerned that it will hurt them mm-hmm. to gain that information. But what, what I have found in my work and, and what the research shows us is that it's 
far more hurtful in a subtle way to not have that information than it is to have that information kind of go through that shock and then move on with their lives. Yeah. So what are what are some of the pitfalls of of just not telling and trying to keep it a secret? What what have you seen or what would you say those pitfalls are? That's a great question. You know, <clears throat> secret keeping in general tends to be pretty poisonous for people. It's not good for our souls. Oftentimes when people are keeping secrets around adoption, it stems from a couple different things. It stems from uh, their own grief and loss because in most cases folks that are adopting were not able to have their own biological children and so that's essentially the death a death in their family mm-hmm. um, that's, something they have to mourn right so they have to <laughs> grieve and they have to mourn that and it also tends to be um, shrouded in feelings of insecurity about your own like capacity or worth as a human guilt and shame about not being able to participate in one of the most natural and what we know to be most important aspects of of the human experience. Um, And so so if if you're prone to want to keep the secret, as an adopted parent, it's really important to look at yourself and figure out why. Mm -hmm. What sorts of things do you need to resolve in your own self um, and understand that by choosing not to resolve that because of the hurt or whatever, um, it's, it's doing a couple things. It's doing a disservice to your child. Um, and it's also perpetuating or setting up the, the cycle of guilt, shame within your own family functioning, because that is subconsciously picked up by our children. Um, and so they will adopt the guilt, shame model of how they look at themselves in the world as well. Um, and that happens in, in, in many families, particularly in the the Western world, regardless of whether adoption is an issue or not, um, <clears throat> but that I would say is the major pitfall: is is what's my own stuff that makes me want to keep this secret. Sure, you know it makes me think about just stories that I've heard recently about you know somebody who's fifty years old and finds out that they're adopted, mm-hmm. or someone who's early 20s and just found out that the dad that's been their dad their whole life isn't their bio dad yeah Mm -hmm. you know everything that goes through and uh, they go through and we often point out to people especially if we're reaching out to you know a birth parent or something that if they if they don't want to face this if they don't want to tell the people around them that this happened that it, it might just be a matter of time with technology as it is all it takes is one person getting a dna test and it's going to blow the roof off and we typically say like this is your opportunity to control the narrative and (laughs) and tell the story and you know have some control of this because a lot of times it it doesn't happen that way someone gets a dna test and a person pops up as their half sibling and they're like who on earth is this person (laughs) right i mean there's a a crazy statistic that um what is it it's almost like a one in uh, one in 20 i think uh people who who do, do do a dna test um, come up with an, I think they call it an unexpected familial relationship. Uh-huh. So out of all the people doing DNA tests, you know, there's a very high percentage, this is something like 17%, um, come up with a family member that they're like, I have no idea who that is. Right. Uh, so that's one in five. Yeah. How was that one in five? Yeah. One <laughs> in five people. That's crazy. And I, I've even heard statistics. I haven't confirmed them yet, but like one in 16 men who do a test have an unexpected 
uh, child basically that like pops up. Uh -huh. So so kind of interesting. Um, so so let's say hypothetically, if if someone waited to tell a child and they become a teenager, maybe you know into the early adulthood or or even older than that, and they've waited to tell how. How do you break the ice, or how where, is there a good way? Maybe maybe there's not a good way to answer that question. What you do but, when so, you're in a fight with them and mad? Yeah, you're adopted. You're adopted. Um, but no, I mean hypothetically, I'm sure we probably have some listeners out there who are in this boat. You know, they they want to tell, they haven't told, they've kept the secret. But how do you how do you unearth that? And and uh, is is there a, a good way to approach it? Gosh, that's a really good question. And I've not ever actually been a part of that process. So I'm just, I'll just sort of speculate based mm -hmm. on, on other experiences that I have and, and just sort of human nature. Um, folks know when they, quote, fit or don't fit. Um, there's sort of an inherent thing that we understand. Mm -hmm. um, and so recognize that they may already have some idea that something just isn't isn't right or doesn't fit. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, I worked with a young man, a 17-year-old young man, who's, um, you, you led with sort of a scenario, <clears throat> who whose mother was his biological mother, um, but his father was not his biological father. She became pregnant by a donor insemination and had never told him. Um, so when I was working with him, they just decided it was time to disclose that at 17 years old. And, and it was interesting because they were super anxious about it. Um, and when they dis disclosed that information to him in a family session, his response was, that makes sense, which was not at all <laughs> what yeah. we were expecting. Yeah. But like as an outsider looking at it, watching you know, watching the parents and just sort of their way of being and watching him and his way of being, it kind of did make sense. Yeah. <laughs> and he had, he had picked up on it. Got and it. so I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that your child probably, especially as a teenager or a young adult, probably has always wondered, why am I so different from my family? Understanding that can help you decide in your relationship with your child how to disclose that information and potentially decrease some of the anxiety that you're going to feel mm -hmm. <laughs> when you're preparing to do it. So I'm not really going to offer a prescription of yeah. what steps you should take to do it rather than the principle of they probably all already know something's up. Mm -hmm. And so it may not actually be as, um, as negative an experience as we would fantasize that it would be. Mm -hmm. And I, I would say just in experience working with, um, you know, working with adoptees and people who've been adopted, um, we typically encourage them that if this is a highly stressful time for you, you know, we, we find events like having a child themselves mm -hmm. um, often triggers them to want to know where they came from and know their biological parents if they know they're adopted. Yes. Uh, but we typically say if you've got a lot of highly, uh, you know, high stress things going on, mm -hmm. we had a person who was in a new job that was high stress, he was adapting, had a ton of responsibility. He also just had his wife, just had their second child. And it's like, man, is this really the time to take on this, uh, this search? Because it's going to be highly emotional. It's going to be right. a big roller coaster for you. 
and you probably don't have the time to invest in it, let alone the emotional strength. So I'm almost thinking, you know, if you're able, if you're going to have that conversation with the with a child, an adopted child, or, um, you know, like we've discussed, then it's probably good to maybe set the scene. Maybe don't wrap it up in a in a, on a Christmas day right. kind of message. To, you know, find a way to have a calm conversation uh, away from stresses or other things going on, just you know, so they can process and not right. just load one more thing on. Right. So you also, I think, need to be prepared. Um, to answer in a sincere and honest way the question of how come you didn't tell me sooner because that question will be asked Mm -hmm. and so being able to like answer that honestly and sincerely and authentically Mm -hmm. um, is really important and that's where we come back to the idea of of resolving your own issues around um, adopting now there are there are a number of folks that adopt you know they've already raised their families and they have a greater capacity for good in the world so mm-hmm. then they choose to adopt and that's a that's a different scenario and actually we um, data shows us that there is a difference between the the likelihood of difficulty particularly in the teenage years mm-hmm. uh, depending upon the reason why parents chose to adopt what they were seeking to obtain because of it. Um, and that's maybe a whole nother conversation, mm-hmm. um, but, but understanding all of that, um, and resolving whatever that is, if there's something to resolve, better prepares you as an adopted parent, adoptive parent to, to be able to answer that question, why you didn't, and, and be able to accept that that might really like they may not appreciate (laughs) that having been the case and being able to own it. You know what? That's something that we chose to do. And, um, we would either choose to do it again, even though this might be hurting or frustrating you or yeah, we would do it over and wish that we had had the capacity to do it differently, but being able to just face that and own it instead of try to explain it away or maybe, uh, turn yourself into a victim in the scenario, which, mm-hmm. you know, anxiety can, can drive us to do that. And oftentimes if we're in a position where we're having to adopt, it's not uncommon for folks to feel like they're a victim of something, circumstance, mm-hmm. if nothing else, that has put them in this position. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Did I even sure. answer your question, Troy? Yeah. No, no, I think <laughs> you did. Um, I, I'm just thinking about the experiences you've had where you've seen it, you know, improve the relationship mm-hmm. and improve the, the health of the family. Like what, what does that look like? Typically is it, you know, is, can it be a, is it usually a long process or, uh, what, what can facilitate that happening? You know, improving the relationship between, between the child and the parent, uh, adoptive parent. And, um, uh, you know, what it, I, 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 I'm sure there's just a long time or it can take time to process. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, um, really, it's pretty individualized. Uh, There tends to be differences between um, the process with young men versus young women across the board. The trends are are totally different as to when they tend to be interested in that information and why they're interested in that information. Um, But really, what, what I've seen across the board is there is now an open channel of communication and trust previously didn't exist Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe the family didn't even know that it didn't exist that there was a block there Um, that's what I've seen particularly with um, with young women 
they tend to want to know, um, they tend to experience more disruption in their lives in their adolescence than young men um, because they tend to be more relationship-based. <clears throat> and they tend to, uh, and, and the reasons for wanting to know tend to be different than, than young men, more about who am I kind of stuff. Whereas young men, um, they don't tend to experience the disruption if they're going to until their late adolescence, early early uh, adulthood. Mm -hmm. And most of the time what triggers the desire is an interest in medical history. Um, and it's less about the relationship, identity, who am I kind of stuff. I mean, that stuff is wrapped in there, mm -hmm. but it's more subconscious than overt. Whereas with the young women, it tends to happen earlier in their adolescence and it tends to be way more about the who am I dynamic than, than it is with young men. But the, the trust and the communication is what I've seen almost universally be benefits that are received from sharing the information. Got it. And, and they tend to be able to start having more fun together. And oftentimes when you're experiencing difficulty or disruption in your family mm -hmm. as a part of adoption attachment issues, you're probably not having a whole lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> and so the ability to start having fun together as a family is, is a huge win. And I see that almost universally as well. Yeah. Cool. So to, to shift gears a little bit, um, talking uh, a little bit more about adoptive parents, um, what, in, in your opinion, what, what can adoptive parents do to, to support their children in a search for their birth parents? And, you know, at, at what ages may that be appropriate? Well, all of my experience has been with adolescents from, say, 14 to, to 18 years old. And so that's, I couldn't really speak to ages before that because I just have never been a part of it and I don't know any data. The number one thing that an adoptive parent can do um, is be secure in themselves. Uh, be secure in the quality of their parenting. Be secure in having resolved their issues that may be wrapped up in an adoption, but really any other area of life. Mm -hmm. uh, because they're gonna need, um, if I may use an analogy, uh, for any Southerners that may hear this, the oak tree that stands strong when the hurricane winds are blowing around. Um, so when they are going through these wild emotional, um, on top of their hormonal shifts, <laughs> they're gonna need, and this is true for, for any parenting, they're going to need a parent that is that oak tree that can that they can wrap their arms around when the winds are blowing and and things are just sort of going crazy for them internally. If you're not able to do that, um, then you're gonna you're not going to be able to support your child in that process as much as you could have otherwise. And I've actually seen that occur um, where I had a young man that wanted to do the search. Um, his father uh, was his initial response was um, was a very emotional why am I not good enough for you sort of response uh, to this young man um, despite that he was willing to go through the process anyway and we actually found the birth family they began communicating but there was still that um, that insecurity there in the father that that exacerbated any disruption that they had in their family functioning um, to the point where 
the child was finally, you know, as he turned 18, was like, I'm out of here, and actually went to live with his birth family. Um, was not a good scenario. For, mm-hmm. for a couple of years, it was not a good scenario. Fortunately, all of that was able to be resolved, and he was able to sort of come back to his adoptive family and reinitiate a healthy, functioning relationship. But I can't help but believe that if, if this father had um, had resolved his own insecurities, then that whole several-year-long scenario might not have played out the way that it did, um, and, and it could have been healthier. So really, it's less about uh, the adopted child and more about resolving your own issues. And I and I and I've been repeating that quite often. Um, because it's really important and it's my experience one of the least talked about aspects of adoption mm-hmm. um, but it's it's really foundational yeah I mean it reminds me a lot of uh, dr. Laura Markham who wrote peaceful parent happy child mm-hmm. and she you know she said so much of that book is just focusing on you being a peaceful parent yep. right having mm-hmm. that that comfortable center and knowing how to regulate your own emotions because parenting happens, you know, right inside of you. It's not between you and the child. It's, it's the majority of it is, is you and, and your reactions and, right. you know, what example you're setting. So, yeah, I can definitely, definitely understand that. So, um, I'm thinking about, um, so, so I, I just being, being an adoptive parent and having fostered a lot of children, um, I, I can understand what the fears of an adoptive parent might be, you know, that, this new relationship is going to replace my relationship with them. Mm -hmm. And I also might have a fear of, of them getting hurt, you know, especially, you know, based on the, the reason for the adoption, you know, in our case, our children were fostered to adopt. So they were foster children until it was determined, you know, by the state that the parents could not, could not be the parent. Um, so I would be, you know, nervous about, uh, reintroducing that relationship when the child might just get hurt again. And um, I can understand how fear might drive a lot of reactions to that and apprehension. Um, but at the same time, you want to help and support them. And, and speaking with um, my mom about this the other day, she kind of mentioned that same kind of pattern of them going away or you know moving their focus to this other parent, almost for like a honeymoon phase mm-hmm. um, to, to where they realize that you know, they don't have that shared history and it's different than they expected. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if they've, if you've got that relationship with them, they'll, they'll always come back to you. I don't know if you, if you saw that in your experience. Yeah, that's actually, that, that's pretty common. Um, because, cause just like when we hope to become parents, we sort of, whether we mean to or not fantasize about what it means to be a parent, what our children are going to be like, um, it's the same when you become an adoptive parent. And children also do the same thing. If they know that they're adopted, they will invariably fantasize about what it would, what their parents look like, what they act like, mm-hmm. um, what it would be like to live in their homes. Um, and so when they, when they are reunited, it's, what you described is, is very common. There's a honeymoon period and then a realization of, kind of had a better over there <laughs> you know yeah. and then a, and then a, a reconvening of, of of those relationships and um, i think truly it's it's a grieving process right because they've yes. got to reconcile 
um, in the case of, of you know, one of the members of our organization um, and her story, she she had thought about this since she was little. You know, she probably had decades worth of fantasies mm-hmm. about what it would be like, about finding, about what mother would be like. And then simply just having to reconcile all those fantasies with reality mm-hmm. would send you, you know, through a very difficult grieving process right. and, and uh, bringing that all together. So, uh, but in the end, you know, I, I feel like, I, as we talked about in the other podcast, you know, this, this process will change you. And uh, if you approach it with love and not with fear, or maybe with more love than fear, um, you know, it can change you for the better. For sure. You know, and the, the idea of, of more, more love than fear. Um, you know, our role as parents is to be a proxy to the world, meaning our job is to be a, a safer, more comfortable way for them to deal with the hardships that the world will present to them. Um, and so if part of that story is adoption, attachment, then, then your job as a parent um, is to be a proxy for a, a safe place for them to practice the skills that they will need in order to navigate that um, <clears throat> in the world. Whether they start the process uh, of, ho- of search and hoped for reunification as teenagers or as adults or young adults or little kids, I've had cases that the best case that I ever worked, um, I wasn't actually working with the child because life was disrupted because of adoption attachment issues. They happened to be adopted, um, but that's not why they were were in my care. Um, and the cool thing about that scenario is, is that child knew they were adopted from birth, basically, their entire lives. Um, it was an open adoption, which, if at all possible, is by far the best way to do an adoption. And the birth mom was a active part of his life. Mm. So she would come to birthday parties. And she wasn't the parent and didn't try to be the parent. Um, but but she was an, an entity in his life his entire life. And that was what I had seen, the best working experience of, of an adoption in action. Um, mm-hmm. Which... I don't know if I was an adopted parent. I'm not know that I'm not sure that I could swallow that, you know. Yeah. Um, because it, it's almost like having you know having a whole other marriage, mm-hmm. um, and so but but it worked for their family and and uh, with this young man he didn't experience any of the disruption based upon adoption attachment issues. It was other things that that led us to to work together. And it, it sounds like, but because of that relationship and how it was set up, it was easier to work through the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And he had a, and he just had a greater s- support system. Yeah. Um. You know, he could, he when he was frustrated with and fighting with his parents or whatever on our on our family therapy sessions, you know, his bio mom was able to offer just a different perspective, mm. um, or, or just whatever. Sure. Um. It was pretty interesting. Oh, that's cool. Thanks for listening to part one of our interview with Jared Sartell. Be sure to check out part two also on our podcast page on our website, discoverfamily.net, or you can visit us on Spotify or many of the other podcast websites. We hope this has been informative and we look forward to your questions, comments, and we'd love to have you join our newsletter on our website. You can sign up and receive updates of what's coming out from discoverfamily.net. Thank you. Thank you.